Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, we had another buggy podcast today, didn't we? <laughs> Thanks for that entomology pun, Preston. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this was a fun one with Dr. Nick Sider from the University of Illinois. Nick's a Midwestern guy, spent a little bit of time in the South, and I thought it was fascinating to learn about his research. Yeah, his research as well as some of the future hot topics around insect control and crop systems. Without further ado, though, let's get right into the conversation with Nick. Welcome to the podcast, Nick. Oh, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. To kick things off, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah, sure. So I um, have three, three degrees all in entomology, bachelor's and a master's from Purdue over in Indiana, which is where I'm from, and uh, did a PhD down at Clemson in South Carolina working on an insect called the kudzu bug. Uh, it's an invasive pest of soybean. Uh, so a lot of different plant names in there that make it confusing, but that's an insect that came into the U.S. Oh, back around 2013, and I started my Ph.D. in 2014. And like a lot of invasive species do, it sort of blew up uh, the first few years it was here. Uh, had a lot of issues in, in soybean down in South Carolina, and so we had a chance to develop economic thresholds to develop initial control recommendations for that insect. It was really kind of an interesting deal. It's uh, the only member of its family in the U.S., which if you're an entomologist is kind of cool. If you're someone else, it's probably not. (laughs) But um, (laughs) So it's the family Platospidae is what it's called, but it's kind of like a stink bug. Um, But then it has instead of, so it has course the two pairs of wings but they're under an enlarged a scutel on the plate that flaps up on their back and, and the consequence of that is that it looks sort of like a trapezoid as far as its shape very boxy looking um, and it doesn't look like it could fly but it can it flies very strongly then the the immatures uh, which are the damaging stage on that are sort of football shaped and, and hairy very distinctive looking like it, when you see it of course the first reaction is what the heck is this and, and that's where, where where they first found it was on the side of somebody's house who happened to live near a, a kudzu patch which there's a lot of those in in georgia and south carolina and these little black insects were covering the side of their house and they they looked at it and said, i i don't know what this is and they they talked to sort of a an expert in that group of of insects and he said this isn't supposed to be here and actually this family's not supposed to be here and uh so did they get naming rights then since they found it <laughs> yeah yeah they, they they should have got naming rights we, they kicked around names for a while before they settled on kudzu bug they, they tried to call it the bean platospid and i think a lot of people had trouble saying platospid i, I had a little bit of trouble saying platospid, you don't want to hear me so. try to say it is it is it widespread now in the coastal region? It, and it, is it going to come up, or is it limited by winters? So, I would expect to find it in southern Illinois at some really? point. I would not expect it to be an issue here. So, a couple of things have happened. One, it, it's very susceptible to certain diseases, um, and especially Bovaria, which is a, a fungal disease that insects get. And this insect is very, very susceptible to that. And it's been kind of like a lot of these invasive species go, where it sort of roars for a few years and, and then 
drops back down to kind of an equilibrium, very similar to like the, the soybean aphid. Yeah. And, and so now it's a pest that they have sporadically in especially South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, kind of in that area where where there's maybe more acres of kudzu, which is the, the preferred host, than there are of, of soybeans. Hmm. But like you, you start to get away from that area um, where there's a lot more soybeans than kudzu, and you see a few of them in the field, but rare to see them at any kind of a problem. And if I had to guess, probably we'll see them at some point, and probably it'll be just sort of a weird yeah. curiosity. Hmm. Uh, be very surprised if we ever saw it as a, a meaningful pest up here. So I assume that despite the optimistic name, it's not enough of a pest to wipe out the kudzu? Or... No, no, it's not. <laughs> and it, it does reduce the dried matter some. They, they did a study on that initially when it came through, and I think they got like 30% reduction oh, of wow. kudzu dry matter with yeah, it. So yeah. it wasn't anything, you, you know, it wasn't nothing. Uh, it doesn't kill the plant, and, and that's what I, what I think they would need to do for it to have a real impact. It, it's kind of interesting when... Looking back through the history of that, of course, it was looked at as a potential biocontrol agent many years ago, and it, it was ruled out because it could because feed, feed on soybean. <laughs> and if you look, a lot of the really good pests of kudzu, soybean rust is another example of one that does really well on kudzu. Uh, most of those cross over and feed on okay. soybean as well. Those plants are fairly closely related. So that was so that gets you through PhD. Now you're between now and then. Uh, yeah, so I first job out of grad school, I worked at the University of Arkansas, uh, a very, very similar position to my position here, uh, except working in southeastern Arkansas on cotton, soybean, corn, grain sorghum, did a lot of work on grain sorghum there on the, uh, the sugar cane aphid, which was another, another invasive pest. It was a really interesting job, awesome job for an entomologist because, you know, southeast Arkansas is one of the buggiest little diversity. corners of the U.S., right? Like, I mean, the, the diversity of insects, the, the numbers, and then the diversity of crops uh, was really interesting as well. Uh, of course, here in the Midwest, obviously, we don't grow cotton, but mm -hmm. like cotton is a... It's a fantastic crop to be an entomologist in, a very challenging crop to manage. There's... Lots and lots and lots of different issues you can have in cotton, different things that can, can go wrong in cotton. So you've got to be watching it very closely. Um, I just want to put a little aside here for our listeners because I'm sitting here with two entomologists. So <laughs> if the entomologists say it's a fantastic crop for entomologists, that means it's not good for anybody else. So. <laughs> it's, a, it, it's a challenging crop to grow in a lot of ways. Really interesting crop. It, you know, it's a perennial we grow as an annual. So we're like... An annual crop wants to save its seeds at the expense of the plant. Cotton wants to save the plant at the expense of its fruits and its seeds. So, like, if it gets too hot too quick, it'll drop its fruit. And if it, you know, gets too much water or not enough water, it'll drop its fruit. And if insects feed at the wrong time, it'll <laughs> drop its fruit. So, like, tarnished plant bug becomes a, a tremendous pest in, in cotton because if it feeds on that square at the wrong time, it'll drop that square. So there's a lot of less tolerance for damage than there is to our corn and soybeans. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Very low tolerance for, for insect damage. <laughs> the other, like with the, of course, they have BT issues as well, BT resistance issues with corn earworm, uh, where ours are below the ground, so you don't see them all that well. You know, you, you don't see it until it's a pretty major problem yeah. with corn earworm, cotton bollworm in cotton. You, you know right away when you have a problem. Um, yep. And so it's very, 
very much at the forefront of producers' minds uh, as far as, you know, loss of susceptibility in that insect and then when to protect the crop with that insect, when to overspray, what to overspray with. Um, and between those two pests, like in the Mid-South, you have really, really a very challenging uh, oh, yeah. insect management system. Mm -hmm. That's without even going into thrips, which are a challenge right. pretty much anywhere you grow cotton in the United States. Yep, yep. Um, so that kept me very busy in the, in the mid-southern U.S. For, for three and a half years there. Nice. Um, really, really awesome place to work. I yeah. uh, really had a great, great experience there. So at some point you decided to come north a little bit. Come to God's In country. the direction of home, but not <laughs> all the way home, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I'm from, from southeastern Indiana, and so I had the, had the chance to get a little bit closer to home well, a lot a lot closer to home and that um it's been really nice uh get to of course see my family all the time and um that's been great and i've uh, been at the university of illinois for three and a half years now and uh, nice. it's so far so good i uh, really enjoy enjoying my time here tell us about your research that you do here at u of i Sure, and uh, do research and extension in corn and soybean primarily here. And of course in Illinois, most of that work ends up being on the western corn rootworm and, and northern corn rootworm as well. Uh, so we do a lot of work evaluating insecticides, evaluating traits for control on that insect. Uh, do some work looking at how to improve monitoring techniques for that insect. Um, and we do some work looking at alternative management tactics for corn rootworm. And, and of course, corn rootworm, as you all know, resistance management is a constant challenge. It's an insect that's developed resistance to insecticides, to crop rotation, to Some of our trees. listeners are more of the consumer, so do you want to tee up rootworm, maybe talk about sure. potential economic damage and things like that too? Yeah, a absolutely. So it's it's the most economically important pest of corn we have. Uh, it's the most expensive pest of corn to control. And in recent years, it's going to be the most damaging as well in Illinois. Uh, once upon a time, that was probably European corn borer, but not, not so much anymore. Yep. So the, the larva is actually hatching right now. Uh, we were seeing fireflies last night yep. Yep. also, like you saw last week. And, and so when the... Uh, when you start to see fireflies out, that means those corn rootworm eggs are hatching. The, of course, they're they're laid in the in the soil, so the eggs will hatch, and that larva goes and feeds on corn roots. As a larva, it can only feed on corn roots and a few other species of grasses, but it doesn't really do as well on any of those as it does on corn. And it feeds on that root system as it, as it grows. It feeds more and more on that root system, and that does you know exactly what you would imagine it would do. It reduces the ability of that plant to take up water, uh, nutrients, and then it'll reduce the, the structural integrity of that plant as well. And when we see that, um, enough of that, and when we get a good strong wind, and especially if there's kind of wet soil conditions, which happens pretty much every year in, in Illinois and pretty much every field all, all the time, uh, those plants fall over uh, if, uh, if rootworm larvae have destroyed that root tissue. Um, and so in addition to just the, the loss of yield potential that you get from reducing that root mass, uh, when the corn goes down, that's, as you would probably imagine, a major issue uh, for a farmer. It's going to reduce the efficiency of harvest. Uh, it can kill the plants in some cases, depending on when it happens. Um, so 
major potential issue with yield loss. Typically, that is a pest that's controlled through a combination of crop rotation, BT traits. Uh, now, Bayer has released SmartStacks Pro with RNA interference and insecticide. But you mentioned alternative controls. Is there something else you're working on? Yeah, one that we just started working on uh, with my, my colleague, Dr. Joe Spencer, here. And, and this is something developed by a, a colleague out at Cornell in New York, uh, Dr. Elson Shields out there, um, we're evaluating entomopathogenic nematodes for control of corn rootworm. Interesting. Um, and the, these are nematodes that infect and kill these these larvae. Uh, so they're they're native. They're they're present in the soils here. Uh, Dr. Shields is isolated strains from New York that are persistent. Um, that's the the real key with these is that they'll stay in the soil. Uh, for several years, and they'll remain dormant until they have a host to feed on. They'll hmm. infect that host, and they'll kill it. And the idea behind these is that you can apply them once, and it, it's not going to be a a hard control. It's it's not going to be something where you put these out and you can forget about corn rootworm in your field. But how do you, it is. How do you apply them? Oh, we, curiosity. It's a lot like a normal pesticide application but there's okay. some little quirks to it so you're not you're not wanting <laughs> like to apply it in a band or, okay it's actually um, topical yeah it's topical huh. it looks more like a like a fertilizer application huh. that does everything okay. else you use a solid stream nozzle or you can even in some cases depend on the sprayer just take the nozzles off and, and allow it to dump really straight through hmm. uh, you apply it in a high rate of water 50 gallons an acre uh, water can't be chlorinated. That was something we had to actually get get water out of our pond out here so that it would not have chlorine in it that would kill those little nematodes. And you, you actually mix those into the water. Um, you infect uh, waxworms um, with these nematodes, mm. and they build up in those waxworms. Dr. Shields' lab did this really? for us, um, and he sent the, the cups of waxworms out. We wash them into the tank um, just with, with water, with more of that non-chlorinated water. And then we spray it uh, following his instructions. Hmm. Yeah, and you're going for a, a solid stream, so it's not like a, a normal application where you want coverage, right? You actually don't want coverage because sunlight will kill them. Okay. Um, they they want to die kind of until they, they get into the soil and then they're, they're where they belong and they can survive. Um, and, and so the idea behind these is that you apply them once, and then they'll persist for several years. Uh, Elson's shown persistence for, for several years in his, his plots. Now he's sort of trying them around the country um, and looking at, you know, something to help complement our other strategies that we have. Because, of course, as we mentioned, this is an insect that's very adept at overcoming the different controls that yeah. we have uh, how, how specific is this nematode i'm just kind of curious because obviously the target is is rootworm but you said you can infect waxworms with it is it is it affect other worms then or, or other it larvae in the soil it, it does affect other um soil insects primarily soil borne insects okay. Um, I know his first test with it was on a, a weevil in alfalfa, and it actually was an alfalfa weevil. It's, a, it's another weevil pest that they deal with in, in New York that I'm struggling to pull up in my brain right now. Um, it's not okay. one that I've dealt with before, but they had pretty excellent success on that, and then they tried it against corn rootworm, and it worked fairly well 
on Corn Rootworm as well. Uh, you know, I believe he's interested in kind of seeing what other pests well, this could could grubs, potentially be a pest against. Like yeah, very interesting. You know, I, I don't know if it's been tested against those or, or not, but um, and, and this is you know it's supplemental biological control. It's supplementing what's already going on in the soil uh, to try to bring it up to a level that's a little more relevant to to management. Mm -hmm. uh, we have. Of course, insects eating insects and infecting insects and nematodes infecting insects and diseases and all of that going on all around us all the time, but it, it doesn't always reach the level that it's actually going to suppress a pest and keep it from exceeding those economic mm -hmm. thresholds. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely seems like it could be a potential piece of armor, you know, like a piece of the puzzle, maybe instead of just a one-pass application to control an insect, maybe it could be part of a multi-prong uh, mm -hmm. protection method. Yeah, that, is this the first year you've? This is the first okay. year we actually applied them last week. So gotcha. So as far as how this it's working on our research. plot, we, we don't know. Um, Stay tuned. We don't know. And, and El, Elson's seen some really encouraging results um, okay. elsewhere. But I'm sure, he's published uh, papers. He has. We should yes. definitely. Yeah, we can link them into the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he's actually he's put out. They had an article about it in one of the agricultural media that I can. Uh, yeah. to show to you. Um, I think it was Progressive Farmer is what okay. it was in. Nice. Uh, Sounds good. But a, a pretty pretty detailed, pretty interesting mm -hmm. article um, about what these things can do. And he's got tests going on elsewhere in Illinois as well. Oh, really? I um, can't remember if they started one last year or if, if the first ones they're starting are going to be this year. Um, okay. But certainly something there's a lot of interest in throughout the country. Um, Absolutely. And it, obviously fun for an entomologist, you know, to go out and you get to look at insects getting sick and the larvae turning color when they get infected by these nematodes. And yeah, Joe, Joe and I got very excited about it. It's lots of fun. But uh, yeah, we're, we're always looking for opportunities to, to evaluate alternatives um, because, yeah, as you know, relying on any one thing in pest management is generally not good uh generally that's how we end up in resistance land and oh, yeah. with, with an insect like corn rootworm it's just an ongoing constant struggle job security uh, for sure yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely you, you talk about an insect that can overcome crop rotation like it's host plant relationship essentially uh that's a, an insect that can overcome pretty much anything yeah yeah well, that's fascinating. And are, are there any other things that you're working on that you like to talk about? Yeah, sure. So we've got work in, in a variety of different systems. Um, one that we're looking at right now with the with the Illinois Soybean Association is just the the residual activity of insecticides um, in soybean. Looking at you know when you put out a foliar insecticide, how long can you expect to get control? Um, for some of these insects that those go out for yeah. these bean leaf beetles, green clover worms, uh, Japanese beetles. Um, we're, we're hoping to be able to do that work with, with stink bugs. It's a little more challenging with stink bugs. Mm -hmm. um, but looking at basically applying insecticides to these fields and then bringing the foliage into the lab at different intervals. So allowing mm -hmm. that material to decay out in the field for one day, two days, three days, seven days, 10 days, 14 days, yeah. and so on, mm -hmm. and seeing how long we still get control either 
avoidance of that tissue or death of the insect when it comes into contact with it in the petri dishes. Cool. Um, and, and trying to get, uh, you know, sort of combine that with our observations in the field. Uh, we, we do efficacy trials, of course, every year where we go out and spray these fields and yep. sample the fields at different intervals. But that, of course, is somewhat confounded by the insects have to be re-entering the field to see that kind of right. effect. So if they're no longer coming into the field, you'll you'll see residual activity forever because <laughs> because there's no insects there com- coming back in. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to combine this to look at, so how long are we actually getting a, a preventative effect from these applications? And, you know, with, with most of the pyrethroids that we put out, we're talking about uh, maybe 7 to 10 days, somewhere in that realm um, is where we're really getting control out there in the field and then beyond that uh it's more just whether or not the insect is actively moving into that field as a a, you know non-entomologist again this is maybe a dumb question but is that typically long enough for a given pest in a given year i mean seven to ten days you kill the majority of them that are out there you know we all know pests kind of you know japanese beetles are a good example they move in and it seems like they're everywhere then I don't know, three weeks later or a month later, you don't really see them anymore. So is that typically long enough, seven to ten days for most pests? So in in Illinois, yeah. If you're applying this at at an economic threshold, you're applying this when you've got an infestation going on in the field, that's enough to get effective control uh, with those products. What what it doesn't do a very good job of necessarily is you're spraying based on a growth stage or based on some other factor you're going across the field rather than you have an infestation out there that's not necessarily going to prevent that next pest infestation mm-hmm. from coming in and you know we get comments like that every year like last year we had bean leaf beetles late in the season um right. feeding on the pods and that and that can be be a serious problem in some cases yeah. and talk talk to several folks who say you know well i sprayed and I still got this problem that I sprayed the wrong thing. Well, no, you didn't, you didn't spray the wrong thing. You just sprayed it before there was a problem. And by the time there was a problem, you, you didn't have anything left. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's ultimately what we're trying to do with that project is to, to get those results out there, get that guidance kind of out there and, and help people to understand we really need to be applying these materials when the problem is there, not not before it's there. With with these insecticides, you don't get this sort of preventative effect mm-hmm. in general. You're, you're killing what's out in the field right now or in a few days. You're not solving a problem a month or two months down the road. What about cover crops? Are you doing any cover crop work? I know a lot of our listeners may be considering, you know, integrating cover crops into their operation have you done any research and do you have any observations any findings that cover crops increase challenging insect problems you know black cutworm anything like that we we've been doing quite a bit of cover crop research over the last few years and a, a lot of our initial research has been looking at cereal rye ahead of soybean uh and and mostly that's because that's of course the most common cover crop system out there in illinois yep. right now uh so we've been looking at that one to see if it, if it does cause additional pest issues. And with cereal rye ahead of soybean, the risk in general has been pretty low. Um, What we see coming into cereal rye in particular, uh, a lot of armyworms, uh, you know, that's a pretty nice attractive egg laying site for armyworm moths. 
the good news is like true army worms in soybean in general are, are not much of an issue they don't really survive on soybeans they'll chew on it um, right. if you have a lot of them out there they'll they'll chew on it pretty hard like you, you'll actually they'll 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 make those leaves look pretty raggedy in yep. some cases yep. in general the the solution to that is to to walk away from the field and come back about a week <laughs> later and and it, it, it looks fine a lot of things yeah, soybeans. <laughs> it, it is yeah early season soybean pressure yeah. uh, it's amazing what they'll come back from um we were looking at fields this morning that had had hail um a week ago and and you could still tell it and i, I think if we go back in a week you probably will yeah. not be able to, to tell that anything right. had happened in that field Rye in front of soybean, the risk in general we found is is pretty low. Uh, one of the pests that we, we do get concerned with, not not just in in cereal rye fields, but in in no-till fields, um, is slugs, and, and that's one that we really have a hard time developing good recommendations for, other than wait until it's dry and hot. You, you know, <laughs> wait until it dries out a little bit, and obviously no one wants to no one wants to wait. And depending on the year, you might not have the option of waiting i know two two years ago 20, 2019 was a, a pretty good slug year in, in yeah. some spots down in effingham and to tell people to to wait until it's drier when it's june is <laughs> no we're, we're, we're not going to wait we can't wait right. um so of course the the chemical control options with that non-insect invertebrate pest <laughs> uh fairly limited uh there's some baits out there tend to be expensive tend to be hard to get a hold of and they're, they're not labeled in soybean, where in, in Illinois, of course, a lot of the problems that we've had with slugs over the last few years have been in, in soybean. Uh, so that's one that's been difficult to, to deal with. And you, you can see that in some of these cover crop fields, but really it tends to be a problem in, in no-till fields in general. Um, and where, where cover crops come into play is when you have more residue down uh, does provide more shelter for them. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that kind of thing. What we're interested in looking at going forward, especially with, with cover crops, is cover crops ahead of corn. And we were, we're part of a, a rather large regional project looking at termination timing ahead of corn and how that influences pest management, uh, especially at our location looking at, at armyworms, but looking at slugs, looking at mm -hmm. black cutworm, looking at some of these mm -hmm. other insects that can come under those cover crop systems as well. Uh, and that, that research, we're, we're just getting started, so we're you know excited to see how that goes. Uh, we just put out waxworms again, but we, we just put out a, waxworms as a, a sentinel prey in that trial yesterday where we huh. set the waxworms out. We actually pin them to a ball of clay and put them out in the plot and see what comes by and eats them. So we monitor predation that way. Do you have a camera set up or how do you identify? We, we don't have a camera set up, unfortunately. Okay. So this, this is a project, this aspect of the project is headed up by my, my colleagues at, at Penn State, mm -hmm. um, Dr. John Tooker out there and, and his postdoc. Uh, I don't know if they're doing any of that kind of stuff. I, I kind of hope they are. We're, we're, we're really just looking very coarsely at, got it. Did these waxworms get eaten? Okay. Um, as a, a proxy for how much predator activity you have out there right, in the field. Right. Again, a technique we haven't tried before, so it's yeah, it's kind of cool to see it in action. Um, mm -hmm. But that's a, a project that we'll be looking at over the next few years, and we've got collaborators on that work that, not just entomologists, but 
plant pathologists and, and weed scientists as well. So we're sending them our our pathology and our weed data, um, and they'll be looking at you know what the effect is on those pest management systems as well um, but looking at you, you know cover crops in in general of course not everything's zero or i uh, where you can get into trouble as a general rule it is when your your cover crop and your cash crop are fairly closely related so if you think about that like zero rye ahead of soybean and grass ahead of a legume you don't have a ton of overlap there. There's some. Your, your risk is lower than it's going to be if you have rye or another grass in front of corn. Right. And then if you put clover or vetch or um, a legume cover crop ahead of soybean, then your risk is going to be a little bit higher. And that's where you can see some of these sort of unique insect pests issues. I know down, down in Arkansas a few years ago when I was there, there were folks that had this pea weevil that, that crossed over from a, a winter field pea into soybean and it was a major issue in that system but the systems the cover crop systems that we're using most commonly like in illinois uh it, it, insect pests are not going to be the major concern with those likely certainly something to watch out for i, I would recommend maybe taking a few extra scouting trips in those fields mm -hmm. especially if it's something you're new to you yeah, know if yeah. you're just getting into to trying out some cover crops. Take a few extra scouting trips through that field and just make sure that right. there's not something happening. But the issues that we deal with, they're issues that we can manage. Um, you know, our army worms, black cutworms, these are insects that we've been dealing with for years and years right. and years, in, in corn in particular, uh, but in soybean as well. Yep, yep. They're, they're pests we can take care of, certainly not. Not nothing that you should scare you away from trying to cover crop right, if you're right. um, interested in trying to cover crop. So you're the entomologist, but you're also a teacher. You have a lot of students. I know you teach 241, I think. Is that the class number? Uh, 270. 270. 270, okay. Yeah, introduction to entomology. Um, do you have any advice for students? A lot of our listeners are students. Everybody should love bugs if they maybe <laughs> if they do and they want to go down a similar path. You know, you went over your background and it sounds like you've had an interesting career. Do you have any advice for a student who wants to maybe follow in your footsteps or look at field crop entomology? Yeah, and, and one thing it might be a little bit counterintuitive, but but I would encourage them if they're interested in in studying field crop entomology. To learn everything they can about about entomology, but to also learn everything they can about about weed science, about plant pathology, about fertility, about um, agronomic practices in general, and about how a crop is grown. Uh, one thing, a, a mistake I see people make sometimes is they get sort of tunnel vision and they they right. learn everything there is to know about their topic, and they they maybe don't learn so much about the other areas of expertise within that that system and, and when I see people set themselves apart in the, in the job market a lot of times it's those people who yeah my the the degrees in entomology but they know something about weed management as well they know something about how to grow a crop they can speak intelligently with a farmer on day one about their pest management system you know, you, you don't want to be the fellow who goes out there and says, what's that? And it's, 
it's tall water hemp or it's right. you know um <laughs> something something that they should know what what's that tank over there well that's anhydrous ammonia that fertilizes a very large percentage of our corn crop in illinois like you want to know a little bit about that entire system and, and that's good one it, it makes you i think more competitive in the job market um, it also makes you more well-rounded and it helps you to design better experiments. So if I'm trying to develop a field experiment in entomology and I don't know anything about how to control weeds, I'm probably going to design a pretty crummy experiment or perhaps a series of pretty crummy mm -hmm. experiments. You, you want to understand that full system. Are you optimistic about the future of job opportunities in field crop entomology? Do you think there's... I am. I, I don't think that's... A, it, insect resistance in particular, and in addition to weed resistance and disease resistance, that's not an issue that's going to go away. Um, that's an issue that's inherent to the biology of these pests. Mm -hmm. So it's not something, I don't think there's an innovation coming where it's going to be like, hey, y'all, we, we've cured resistance. We, we've solved resistance. Yeah. We're, we're not going to solve evolution. You know, we're not going to make that go away. Um, I think in particular, there's always going to be a demand for entomologists and, and other disciplines as well who understand that, that practical side, who can, who can take the science and apply that to production and apply that to practical issues that, that farmers and crop advisors have. Um, that, that, that's something that I see when, when you have a, a student who can do that, who can understand the practical aspects of what it is they're studying. Uh, that's someone who's going to be competitive in the job market. And, and when that person is willing to work um, and is willing to you, you, you know, put in the hours that it takes that obviously y'all know all about working in agriculture. It's a uh, um, fe feast or famine in terms of stuff to do, right? You're either, uh, if you've got downtime, it's probably in the winter. You, you probably don't have downtime in, in May, um, in June, in July. Mm -hmm. uh, it's pretty go, go, go um, while the growing season is happening. Uh so if you're willing to, to live that life and, you know, do what needs to be done, um, make hay while the sun is shining, as they say, and you've got that practical training, and then you understand the science that backs all that up, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there for, for folks like that. I think that advice of being well-rounded and balanced and learning about other topics that maybe tie in in some way to your field that you want to go into is really valuable in really whatever you go into. I mean, sometimes we, and we all as an undergrad probably took a couple classes. We thought, why do I ever need to use this? Am I ever going to use this? And maybe there were some classes that we're never going to use. There, there, there are, to be honest. But, you know, we use a lot more different aspects that maybe we thought we were never going to use too. So I, I think that goes for anything. Don't be afraid to learn something new about something that maybe isn't your area of expertise. In fact, seek out those opportunities. Nick, this has been a fascinating conversation and you obviously with your research and really anybody in research is really looking to the future and learning about how we're going to deal with things in the future and new technology and all these things. What about the future of 
egg from an entomologist perspective is most exciting to you? You know, one of the things that's really exciting to me, with, with all the technology we've got, it, it seems like in many cases our ability to, to gather information has maybe advanced faster than our ability to, <laughs> to, to know what to do with that information. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> yeah, and in entomology, it doesn't happen as much because insects are hard to count with the sensor, you, you know, and I've got lots of colleagues working on different ways to, to use sensors to, to count insects or to use drones to count insects, and it's, it's hard. Like, they move. They, they fly, they don't stay where they're supposed to stay. Leaf, yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. They go and sneak around the side of the stem and all, all sorts of stuff. Um, but really, to me, it, in agriculture as a whole, seeing how we're able to take all this information that we're getting, you know, you talk about like these sensors that collect, I mean, electrical conductivity on the go and all, all sorts of soil information just all sorts of information all the time and taking that and actually applying that to recommendations and applying that to site-specific recommendations and using that to make operations more profitable and, and more effective. That, that's really fascinating to me. On the entomology side, I'd love to be able to, to join that club, the, the club that's bringing in too much, <laughs> too much information, you know. We... We still go out there with a net and count insects that way, and obviously the number of insects I can collect from a soybean field with a net uh, is a little bit limited compared to like mm -hmm. how many yield measurements a yield monitor can take in a combine. Right. Um, right. I, we, we'd love to get closer to that, but I, I don't even necessarily know what technology it's going to be that, that gets us there. Or if it'll happen, maybe in 20 years I'll still be out there with a net while y'all are, you know, measuring weed density with virtual reality goggles. and Just have the drone fly around with the net. And then... Yeah, that, that's probably, probably about right. That's probably about where we'll get it. I, I've got some colleagues who have tried really? that, with, okay. apparently with some success. Yeah. So, huh. Um, Interesting. I mean, put yeah, putting the putting the vacuum on a yeah. on a robot and carrying it around is going to be more effective than me, probably. <laughs> nice. <laughs> be the the John Henry of sweet net <laughs> and, and racing. Um, but yeah, I really think you know, to me, seeing how we we take all this information that we're gathering and, and apply it to sound recommendations, you know, it's it, it's exciting stuff um, to see how that develops. Perfect. Yeah. So as Jason said, we appreciate your time here today. Is there a way our listeners can follow you, like Twitter or anything like that, or a website where people could go to learn more about what you do? Sure. I, I, I am on Twitter if they're, if they're into that sort of thing. It's at Nick underscore Cider. I'm not nearly as active as a lot of my colleagues for, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. I, I'm not a social media person by nature. Um, I use it as a, as a tool. Uh, it's, it's a great tool for getting updates and information out there. For, from my perspective, it's not such a great tool for <laughs> engaging people and cer certainly not a tool for trying to convince something of something. That I'm the curmudgeon old guy, but I sometimes call it anti-social media. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's, uh, it, it's certainly got its pluses but it's got some pretty obvious minuses too and I, i'm a fairly shy person by nature in a lot of ways and it's I, I i'm not the personality type that 
that Twitter was made for. <laughs> uh, but a, another uh, where, where we put a lot of our updates and are increasingly trying to, to post a lot of our content, a lot of our more permanent content or video content, uh, be a website we're, we're calling Crop Central. Um, it, it's posted or it, it's posted along with sort of the, the Farm Doc and Farm Doc Daily. Um, nice sites but it's very easy to find it's go.illinois.edu slash crop central and that's where you can find the bulletin which has our, our yeah. newsletter type articles um you can find some some insect survey information there and the links on the side and we're um, hoping to put more of our our fact sheets our agronomy handbook um that kind of information uh there as well going forward excellent we'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes and yeah, we appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Oh, sure thing. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to, to be on your show. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.